0: You know, we call ourselves a, a Bible-believing church. That is, we believe that uh, the Bible is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Second you know, Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And 2 Peter 1.21 tells us, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but... Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And we believe, therefore, that this book, God's Word, has full authority over our lives. What it teaches, we are to believe. What it says, we are to do. We're not to quibble with it. We're not to argue with it. We're not to explain it away. We're to take it at face value, embrace its truth, and submit to all that it says. That sense of authority. The authority of God's word is essential. If you're going to uh, profit from your study of it or you're listening to it, if you begin to question the Bible's authority at any point, then you will question the application of its message and meaning to your hearts and to your lives. And that, I think, is what is before us this morning in these first three verses of Ephesians 3. Now as we've seen over the past several weeks, in Ephesians 2, Paul says remarkable things. He said that salvation comes only as a gift of God's grace. It cannot be earned or deserved. He said that salvation, that gift of salvation is received by us through faith alone and even that faith is a gift that God gives to us. He has said that uh, Christ has broken down whatever barriers there were between men, especially between Jews and Gentiles, making us all into one new man. He said that we all come to Christ the same way. We all come to salvation the same way. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. And because of that, he says, we have a new identity. And our identity is that now we, were, we belong. We are in. We're in the kingdom. We're in the family. And we're in the church. Now, it seems to me that as Paul moves into to, to chapter 3, he's trying to validate those truths. And, and he's trying to validate them by affirming to the Ephesian believers the authority he had to teach those truths. Now, you see, some of those things just cut against the grain. Some of those things were very much anti what these people had been taught and learned and believed from their earliest days. And so, there would be no question about it. So, they would understand that... There wouldn't be any doubt about what he's taught. Paul here, I think, reaffirms something of his spiritual authority. Because just as we need to believe, and so I started there this morning, just as we need to believe the authority of God's Word and not question it, to be able to receive it and profit from it, so those people in the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, church in Thessalonica the church in galatia or wherever it was they had to to believe in in Paul's authority his spiritual authority to be able to glean from what he was teaching to them and i think that's what he's doing here he's reaffirming to these believers his spiritual authority the right he had to teach these very profound spiritual truths now before i go into the the significance of these Evidences of his spiritual authority. I think I need to to say something about the way this text unfolds. Just look at chapter three with me for a moment, if you have your Bible open. In my my text, verse one opens with the words "for this reason," and, and then it seems Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, kind of goes on a detour. Because look at verse fourteen where he says... again... for this reason... Now, the way I read the text... he is picking up... in verse 14... with where he started... actually in verse 1... for this reason... his intention... as he opened the third chapter... was to... was to offer a prayer... for these believers... that's what he says in verse 14... for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father... and it appears... he was beginning to do that... at the beginning of the chapter... He gets diverted by the Holy Spirit's influence and goes into a little bit of a detour and comes back to it in verse 14. At least that's my understanding of the text. And so this is kind of a parenthetical section which Paul deals again with his sense of spiritual authority and he gives us four reasons, four confirmations of that. And and the first confirmation that he gives is that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For this reason, he says in verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians is one of what we know as the prison epistles. That is, Paul wrote this letter when he was in prison in Rome. Now, he was under house arrest there. He had some freedom. He could have visitors. Uh, He could communicate with other people. He could write letters as he wrote this one. uh, But he was under a 24-hour guard. Now, technically, Paul was the prisoner of Nero. A notoriously wicked Roman ruler who was in power during that time in history. Now, Paul had been in prison, actually about five years when he wrote this letter. He had been two years in Caesarea, three years in Rome. He faced a very uncertain future being held there uh, under house arrest in Rome. He'd actually been arrested in Jerusalem. The Jews had trumped up false charges against Paul. They had accused him of taking a Gentile man, a man named Trophimus, into parts of the temple Gentiles were not supposed to go. And they brought charges against Paul for that, had him arrested. And uh, there was such opposition against Paul in Jerusalem that they moved him from Jerusalem to Caesarea and then from Caesarea on to Rome. And it was from Rome uh, that Paul wrote uh, this letter. Now, we see again that, that Paul always lived from the from the vertical perspective, didn't he? You know, even though he'd been charged with a crime by the Jews and had been arrested on those charges by Nero and his underlings, Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner of Nero or a captive of the Roman Empire. No, Paul sees himself here in verse 1 as the prisoner of of Christ Jesus. He was in prison because of his commitment to Christ. He was in prison because of his undaunted commitment to the gospel that God had given to him. Nero didn't own Paul. Jesus did. And Nero didn't have the ultimate say over what happened to Paul. God did. And the apostle Paul lived under that sense of God's authority. Now let me linger there for just a moment I know I say this a lot, but you just have to deal with it. Look, folks, the way that you view your life and the things that happen in your life matters. It matters a lot. You know, we talk about a lot of sad things here, don't we? We've talked a lot about a lot of sad things here this morning in our prayer time in Sunday school and things we prayed for here in in worship. Well, how do we view that? Two ways. You can view it from the, from the human perspective, or you can view it from the, the divine perspective. The way I like to say it, you can view it from the horizontal perspective or the vertical perspective. And Paul was able to live this way, wasn't he? I'm in prison. Boy, if he looked at that from the human perspective, the horizontal perspective, he would be, woe is me. And yet he saw himself not being captured and thrown in prison by the wicked Nero, but there for the cause of the gospel of Christ. He even told the Philippians, I'm here because of the advancement of the gospel. And because I'm here, more people will hear the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to see his life from the vertical perspective. And what I want you to see is that gave Paul an additional sense of spiritual authority. People knew who Paul was. People knew his commitment to the gospel. People knew that he was willing to do whatever, go wherever, experience whatever, in order to fulfill the calling God had given to him to proclaim the gospel. And so, the people trusted Paul. The people believed Paul. Because he was willing to even go to prison for the sake of his commitment to Jesus Christ. That's the first one. The second confirmation of his spiritual authority here is that he was a minister, he says, to the Gentiles. Verse 1 again. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of... Of you Gentiles. You see, Paul could never separate himself from those to whom he ministered. I mentioned a few weeks ago on our Sunday evening study of the book of Acts, and so often we see the Apostle Paul or think of Paul as um, an evangelist or as a church planter, and he was those things. But the Apostle Paul was first and foremost a pastor. Paul had A pastor's heart. Paul has said, being a pastor is not a job. It's a lifestyle. It's not just something that you do. But it's something that you are. Gavin's probably heard me say that 50 times. Being a pastor is not a job. It's not just what you do. It's what you are. And that's who Paul was. Paul was a pastor And he carried the needs of those to whom he ministered with him all the time. And that's what reflected here at the end of verse 1 where he says, look, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And the reason I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus is because of you. For your sake. Because of the Gentiles. Now that was simply a matter of fact that, that Paul was a minister To the Gentiles. Now, think about it for just a moment. Specifically, he was in prison because of the Gentiles, because of his relationship with Trophimus, the Gentile friend. But more than that, on a broader scale, Paul was called to evangelize the Gentiles above all. Look down at verse 8 of chapter 3, where he says this To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach. To the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. That was Paul's calling, to preach to the Gentiles. And it was not always an easy calling. In in fact, in in the social and religious and cultural climate of, of Paul's day, it was often a dangerous calling. Yes, Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. But specifically, he was in prison for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So, do you see the significance of what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying to these people, and that's why I believe it's a bit of a diversion. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, oh, by the way, I am a prisoner for your sake, for the sake of you Gentiles because of my commitment to you, because of my desire to minister to you, to evangelize you, to see you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had a a genuinely pastor's heart. It's reflected here in what he says. Turn with me. Keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 3 and turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Where Paul expresses his own pastoral heart to the believers there in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2. I want to read verses 5 through 8. What he said to the church there. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as... Apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. What an amazing statement. We imparted to you not only the gospel of God, but also... Our own lives. Paul gave himself, literally gave himself, to those to whom he ministered, even to the point of being willing to be sacrificed for their sake, even being thrown into prison because of his commitment to his calling to minister to them. Now, as you can see, that too garnered the Apostle Paul a great deal of spiritual authority. As we say today, those Gentiles, those Gentile believers knew the Apostle Paul had their back. I'm in prison for the sake of you Gentiles. I'm willing to be here that you may know Christ. And that gained the Apostle Paul a tremendous amount of spiritual authority. Then the third confirmation of his spiritual authority is that he was a steward of God's grace. Look at verse 2, where he says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Paul was given the responsibility of the stewardship of God's grace. Now, a steward was someone who managed things for someone else. They took care of the house, or the crops, or the children, or the money, the possessions of another person. And so, as you can imagine, a steward had to be completely trustworthy. The Greek word literally means to be <coughs> over a house. And a steward, therefore, was over what belonged to someone else. They had the responsibility of taking care of and using wisely what belonged to another person. You see, if you put your money in a banker, if you give your money to an investment broker, then that person has to become the steward of your money. If your parents hire a babysitter, or you bring your children up here to the nursery on parents' night out, and you leave your children with the sitter, that sitter has become your steward. You're watching over something, protecting, caring for something, that belongs to you. As you can tell, the list of examples is endless. Anytime you entrust something that belongs to you to the care of someone else, they have become your steward. They are to exercise good stewardship with what you have entrusted to them. And Paul says here, God entrusted His grace to me. I'm the steward of God's grace grace. Now you know what he means by that. God had given to him the message of grace. And Paul was to be a steward of that message of grace. He was to guard it and he was to protect it and he was to proclaim it faithfully and truthfully. He was not to distort it or modify it or change it or alter it. He was not to turn it into something different just because he didn't fully understand it or like it. No, he was to preach it and he was to teach it just as God gave it to him. He was to be willing even to be thrown into prison, ostracized, beaten because of his stewardship of the grace of God. A good steward protects what's entrusted to him at all costs. And that's exactly what Paul was. Paul was a good steward of the message of God's grace. He defended it with his life. He protected it even at the risk of his life. And people, could know, people knew they could trust what Paul said and what he taught and what he proclaimed because he was a good steward, faithful steward of the message of God's grace. Now, again, the way Paul handled the message of grace God had given to him, earned him a lot of spiritual authority. People could trust what Paul said. They could believe what he taught. The people had heard. They knew of Paul's stewardship of the message of grace. It's well known. He protected and guarded the truth. Then there's a fourth confirmation. And that is that Paul was the recipient of God's mystery. He goes on to say in verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote for him brief. Now we're going to see a lot more about that mystery in the next section where he kind of unfolds more of the detail of the mystery. And of course the mystery to which Paul refers here is the mystery that the Gentiles were included in the grace of God and the salvation of God. You know, it's really hard for us on on this end of things. Really hard for us to understand what a what a dramatic thing that was. How hard it was for some of the Jews to grasp the fact that those who, had, for so long, had been outside the covenant were now inside it. That those who so long had lived without knowing God now could know Him. That those who had been so long estranged from the promises of God now had the hope and the promise of heaven themselves. It was such a such a mystery to them that they stumbled all over it, didn't they? They they just could not quite grasp the fact of this mystery that God was unfolding through the Apostle Paul before their eyes. Now, you need to understand that the idea of a mystery in the Bible is different from our idea of a mystery today. I've told you before my wife loves a good mystery show she loved to watch uh, columbo and murder she wrote and monk and you know the whole theme of those shows is that you know somebody committed a crime or a murder and the whole theme is to try to unravel the puzzle of who did it and how and so the detective goes through all this detective work trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together finally realizing who the guilty person was and how they did it. It's a puzzle to be unraveled. That's not the idea of a mystery in the Bible. The gospel's not puzzling. The Bible's not confusing, but the message has been hidden, and God in His grace now is revealing it to His church. It's not hard to understand it's just different from what the jews had believed and known all their lives and so this word mysterion in in the greek is is not something that's puzzling that's got to be kind of figured out but it is something hidden that now has been revealed and and paul was the one to whom god gave that mystery god was the one God or Paul was the one God called to to, to show the truth, to, to reveal what had for so long been hidden. And again, that gave Paul a tremendous sense of spiritual authority, didn't it? He was God's messenger, entrusted not just with God's grace, the message of it, but also with his mystery. And God called Paul to to reveal that mystery to His people and to the church. I hope you get the point of kind of where I'm going this morning. It's still important. It's still important in the lives of God's people. You have to see that those from whom you receive the teaching of God's Word and those who preach the message of the Gospel have a sense of spiritual authority we live in a day and an age where there is so much available to us and so many different venues, so many different avenues. You know, we can uh, download sermons and teaching on our phone. Someone told me about an app this, this week, how I can download Good Reform teaching on my phone. And I downloaded it. I haven't been able to get it to work yet, but I downloaded it have to get somebody to help me figure it out. But you know, just a click on your computer and there's all this teaching that's available. Turn on your radio and you can hear from dial to dial hearing different people speak and teach. Whoever you listen, wherever you turn your attention, make sure that person has a sense of real spiritual authority their message is coming from God and from His Word. You know, we preachers, we're just men. We're sinful men. Fallen men. Broken men. And God just called us to proclaim the truth of His Word. The authority doesn't come from just a calling. The authority comes from the difference that God makes in our hearts and lives. Years ago, actually I was in my first church, in my 20s. I was a pastor in a nearby church in another small town, South Mississippi. And he called me one day and asked me to meet him at McDonald's for breakfast, and so I did. He was older than me. It was new in this church. It's frustrating. He said, those people won't listen to me. They're supposed to listen to me. I'm the preacher. They're supposed to listen to me. And I said, Well, you've got to earn the right to be heard." You he they didn't have that sense of spiritual authority in its life. And that's so important. So important. So to whomever you listen, wherever you find your spiritual guidance, even when you come here, make sure the messenger and the message go together. Father, thank you so much for your word. You are a faithful and good God. We're so thankful for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who was a pastor, who loved his people, who faithfully proclaimed the message of grace to them, who was willing to sacrifice whatever was required to teach them the truth. I thank you for the spiritual authority he manifested. I pray for all those who have been called to preach and teach your word in various mediums, whether it be behind a pulpit or behind a podium in a classroom, whether it be on a college campus, whether it be on through various forms of media. We pray, O oh God, that you would qualify your people not just by a calling but also by character. There might be a real sense of spiritual authority in the life of your church. And life, your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.